If I haven't had the chance to meet you yet, I go by Ant. I serve as the pastor here. I'm very glad that you're here. If you're a guest and you're worshiping with us, thank you so much for, for joining us as we continue on in our Advent sermon series where we're looking at the coming of our Savior, Jesus Christ. If you've got a Bible with you, if you want to use your phone, you can go and go to Luke chapter 2. I'll meet you there in verse 8 in just a little bit. Uh, before I do, I wanted to share with you uh, an experience I had in the last, I think, two or three weeks. Uh, so some friends of mine... Uh, had all watched a, a certain a specific TV show. Uh, I won't say the name because I won't recommend it. And I, after I watched it, uh, I realized I definitely won't recommend it from the pulpit. So uh, I was, it was a certain show and they were, they were telling me, I mean, they were talking this show up. I mean, they were saying like, this was one of the greatest shows that they have seen. And the way that they were communicating to me about this show kind of had me excited about it. I thought I was I'm thinking I'm going to really love this show. Because the, the, the way people talk about things kind of dictates to you what you expect the thing to, to be. The way people proclaim it, they, it kind of helps shape for you what you're expecting and how great you're expecting it to be. And I ended up being extremely disappointed. I didn't even think the show was that great. I, I couldn't understand why everyone was watching this show. But the thing that it did, it did communicate to me was that I, I, my expectations were as high as they were because of what was said to me about the show. If someone was just like, hey, you know what, try to show out, you know, you might like it, then maybe I would have been less disappointed. But when, when someone hypes something up, when the announcement is great, you expect greatness from that thing. And we have a tendency to, to communicate something differently when we think that something is great. For example, if someone were to ask you about their pastor, you'd be like, man, this bro can preach, right? He's like... <laughs> You'd be like, you'd be like, you'd be like, it's like if Prime Denzel met your favorite preacher. Like, that's what you, that's what you, that's how you would communicate. You ain't got to say amen. I know what you would communicate. You don't have to say amen at that point. The, the point is, the point is, the way that we communicate and announce something communicates to those we're, communic we're, we're talking to how great they should expect this thing to be. And what we find here today as we're in Luke chapter 2 is we find this incredible, unique announcement of the birth of Jesus. And what the angel is communicating, what God, I would say, is communicating in this announcement is that the, the birth of Jesus is, such is so incredible and so unique that, that it warrants this beautiful, glorious, wonderful announcement that we see here in chapter 2. Let's start at verse 8. It says, and in the same region... There were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were filled with great fear. So these are shepherds out in the field. Obviously, there's no street lights at this time. Right? This would have been a very dark place for them to be. Maybe there's a fire. Maybe they got some lamps that are lit. But in general, it's very dark. And this angel appears out of nowhere. And it says the glory of God was shining around them. It's not saying the glory of God was shining around the angels. It's saying around the shepherds. God's glory was just shining, seemingly lighting up the night for this announcement that the angel is about to make. And there are a lot of very important births in the Bible. There are a lot of births, there are a number of births in the Bible that were prophesied, that were predicted by God, or maybe by an angel or by a prophet. There are miraculous births in the Bible. Isaac was a miraculous birth, the promised son to Abraham and Sarah. John the Baptist, as we saw last week, was a very important birth that was predicted by the angel. I think of Samson, Jacob, and Esau, and Samuel, all births that were either miraculous or that were prophesied and predicted 
to happen because of their significance. All of these were very important. None of them had angels appearing to people and specifically a multitude of people. None of them, as we will see later, had, had the had this, this, this multitude of the heavenly hosts that appeared. None of them lit up the sky with God's glory at their birth. Jesus' birth was unique. As we go through this passage, I want to focus on today what this passage shows us makes Jesus' birth so unique. Let's continue on verse 10. It says, And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. So the angel and the glory of God show up, and the shepherds are terrified, rightly terrified. It's dark. All of a sudden, there's light. There's this angel talking to them that wasn't there just a moment before. And the angel tells them, instead of being afraid, he's coming to bring them joy, that they will have reason to have joy. Now, this term that the angel uses, he says, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy. That term good news is also a word that can be translated to bring the gospel or to declare the gospel. That term gospel at that time was often used to proclaim the victory of a king or the victory of a kingdom. So obviously they didn't have cell phones, they didn't have the forms of communication that we had at that time. So oftentimes kings would go to war, armies would go to war with each other, and, and how that war would end up would dictate a lot about the, the, about the coming era that all of them would be in and that all of them would experience. So it was very important to know who won the war, who was going to be victorious. And if your king won, they would share this good news, or they would share this gospel, and they would run, they would run throughout the cities and throughout the towns and, and proclaim the gospel of or the good news of the king that won the war. The term gospel, when used in this sense, was often a, a monumental announcement. It wasn't just simply good news in this sense, but it was life-changing news. It would, it would be news that would change the way your life would go, depending on what king was victorious, who won the battle. And the first point that I want to make about why Jesus' birth is unique is because it means the king and the kingdom of heaven have come to earth. It means the king and the kingdom of heaven have come to earth as the angel proclaims this gospel about the birth of Jesus. Now I want to break down a little bit what we see in verse 11. It says, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. I'm going to turn there for the sake of time. But if you're familiar, in, in Micah chapter 5, you can go look this up in your own time, there was prophesied that there would be this ruler that would come from Bethlehem, which is where David was born, which is where David was from. So it will be referred to here as the, the city of David, where David obviously was this former great king that was born. It's prophesied that another ruler would come from Bethlehem. So the angel, when he says, for unto you this day in the city of David, or, excuse me, for unto you is born this day in the city of David, a savior. He's letting them know. He's bringing their minds back to Micah chapter five. I believe it is verse two where it talks about this ruler that will come from Bethlehem. This is a word we see a lot in the Bible. I don't want us to take it for granted. He also says that this child, this baby, will be Christ the Lord. The Jews at that time knew that one was coming that would be this Messiah or the, or the Christ. That term means deliverer. It means a savior. The angel is letting them know that this ruler that is coming from Bethlehem will also be the savior of God's people. 
And at this time, someone who would come and be a savior specifically to the people of God at this time, as they were being oppressed by the Roman Empire, they would have understood this to be someone powerful enough to overthrow the current power, the current kingdom, the current authority that was present. This would be the only way to actually set your people free is you have to be able to overthrow and overpower what is currently over them and wielding its power over them. Generally speaking, this would only be accomplished by a king. But he also calls him Christ the Lord. That term for Lord means someone who is in control, someone who is a master. My point is the, the way that the angel is talking about Jesus who was born here is that he will be a king. He will be a ruler. He will be a Messiah. He'll be in control. He'll be a master. He'll be able to save them from the powers that are currently over them. The angel comes to the shepherds the day Jesus was born and said that the one that the prophets of old told you was coming, the one that is going to deliver you from your oppression and from your oppressor, the one that is the sovereign master that was prophesied to come from Bethlehem, he, the one that is going to reign as king over all, he was born today. And he's saying, I come as a messenger of this good news, of this gospel, that you don't have to wait for his arrival any longer. He is here. And I love the picture that we get as we continue to work our way through the passage today. Let's look at verse 13. It reads, and suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God. So it goes from, from one angel to a, to a multitude of, of seemingly other angels or other heavenly beings that are there with the angel just praising God. Now, elsewhere in the Bible, as far as my research could find, the only other times that we see the heavenly host, the angels and all the heavenly beings at that time praising God is in the throne room. It's actually in the kingdom of heaven. So as we see Jesus coming and being born, the king of heaven being born here on earth, and as we see this picture of what is generally a depiction of the heavenly throne room here on earth, it's showing us that the kingdom of God is breaking through into the earth. It's showing us that the king of heaven is now here. That the kingdom of God is here to do what God has always intended to do. Now, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the end of the book or not in Revelation. But ultimately, what we see is heaven coming to earth. John says, I, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, that this is God's goal from the very beginning, that the way he's going to restore everything and make everything the way that he desires for it to be is bringing heaven to earth. And right here, we see that beginning to happen at the birth of Jesus. This is what is unique about Jesus's birth. Not only is he a king, not only is he going to reign, but he is bringing the kingdom of heaven to earth. Jesus' first coming is the inauguration of the kingdom of God coming to earth. And it would be through this kingdom that God is going to save them and free them from their enemies and their oppression. Now, the Jews at that time, many of them at least, thought that this savior was going to save them from the Roman Empire that was the leader and the ruler of the known world and that was very harshly oppressing them at this time, which makes, makes sense to a degree because if you're familiar with the ways that God saved his people in the Old Testament, oftentimes he would raise up someone that would free them from those who were oppressing them. Like he, ra he raised up Deborah and Gideon and, and Ezra to, to help lead them away from those that might oppress them. But a closer look at the Old Testament actually reveals to us that the thing that was truly oppressing them even more than those who were in power was the power and the effects of sin. 
Ever since Adam and Eve ate in the Garden of Eden, sin, which is both any kind of wrongdoing that we commit that is offensive to God, and it is this nature and this tendency that we have to not follow and obey God, sin has wielded power over us and caused us to not follow God as we should. In fact, Jesus let us, lets us know, you can look it up in your own time in John chapter 8, that unless he sets us free, we are all enslaved to sin. That sin in itself is an oppressor and a slave master. The apostle Paul writes in Colossians that before coming to know Jesus and him bringing us into his kingdom, that we are in what he calls the domain of darkness. That term domain means authority or jurisdiction or power. He's saying that outside of being brought into the kingdom of God, we are under the authority and power and jurisdiction of darkness and of sin. And outside of Christ, we are powerless against it. But the Jews at that time, they missed the fact that God's people's biggest oppressor was always sin, even though if you look closer, it was always very clear in the Old Testament. So when God's people had been harshly oppressed by the king of Canaan for 20 years, you can read about it in Judges chapter 4 on your own time, God raised up Deborah to save them, a prophetess. But God made it clear at the beginning of the chapter that the reason that God allowed them to be oppressed by their enemies is because they did evil in the sight of the Lord. And it took them about 20 years for them to actually cry out to God for God to come and save them. And when God's people, just two chapters later in the book of Judges, when God's people were overtaken and, and oppressed by the Midianites for seven years, they cried out to God and God raised up a savior in Gideon to come and save them. But again, God made it clear that that was happening to them because they had done evil in the sight of God and weren't following God. And when God's people were in exile, God raised up Ezra to lead them back to the promised land where they wouldn't be amongst these, oppress, these different oppressive empires that would be harming them. And God used Ezra to free them from exile. But even before they went to exile, time and time again, for years and years and years, God warned them, if you don't turn away from your idolatry, if you don't stop doing that, if you don't start following me, you will be sent into exile. All of their oppression was rooted in a deeper oppression of sin that they were experiencing. Every time they were oppressed after reaching the promised land, it was the same reason they had turned away from God. What's my point? They saw how God had used Deborah and Gideon and Ezra to save them from the oppressive nations and kingdoms, and they thought that Jesus was coming primarily to do the same when they should have noticed that their deepest problem, their most fundamental problem, was always the fact, it was never the fact, I should say, that they needed to be saved from the Canaanites or the Midianites or whatever current empire was ruling the, the known world. Their biggest problem was their sinful nature. Their biggest, deepest, most fundamental problem was their tendency to keep running back to sin and worshiping false gods. Because if they would have been set free from that, they would have never been, they would have never needed to have been set free from the other oppressors because they would have never been taken captive by them. So many at that time, when Jesus came, you might, be, you might be able to notice this from Jesus' life, how many of the Jews rejected him and didn't accept him, or, or some of them started following him at first, but then turned away from him and stopped following him when he didn't meet their expectations. Many of them, they cared more about their temporary circumstances than they cared about the sin that was leading them away from following God and living as he had designed for them to live. They missed the glory of the coming of Christ, the, the Savior, the Messiah that they had been waiting on. And the angel, the angel claimed to be bringing good news of great joy when talking about Jesus coming. 
But as we know, many people didn't find joy in him at all. Many rejected him. See, they wanted him to make their situation better, and he wanted to make their hearts better. They wanted him to save them from the evil Romans, and he wanted to save them from the evil sin that was inside of their hearts. They wanted him to stop their oppressors, and he wanted to free them and free the whole world from the sin that, 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 that all oppression is rooted in. And because they didn't see, because they didn't notice and hate the power that sin had over them, they didn't treasure the Savior that came to save them from sin. One of the things that all of us we need to realize is that unless you have a clear and, and accurate diagnosis of the problem, you will never truly be able to appreciate the solution or the Savior. If you don't have a correct assessment of what is fundamentally wrong, what is actually your biggest problem, then you won't be able to truly celebrate. You won't see the news of Jesus coming to be good news of great joy for all the people. If you think your biggest problem is your circumstances. If you think your biggest problem is the fact that you haven't reached the goals that you desire to reach. If you think your biggest problem is that your life doesn't have as many comforts as you desire for it to have. If you think your biggest problem is, is your boss or your enemies or your haters or whoever else, then you won't see, you had to throw that in, then you won't see Jesus as the Savior that he's, sure, you, you might see him as someone, yeah, I, I still need to come to church. I still need to do what I'm supposed to do. But if you don't see sin and all the effects of sin and all the damage that sin has done in our world, all the damage that sin has caused in your relationships, all the damage that sin has caused in the way that you view yourself, all the damage that sin has caused in our worth, even in personal relationships and globally and on a societal level, then you won't see Jesus for the Savior that he is. And you won't see the news of his coming as the news of good and great joy that God desires for you to see it as. We need to understand what the fundamental problem actually is. It has always been sin. And I don't want you to be so caught up and your goals and dreams and ambitions and your job and your to-do list and all the entertainment that is around us that you forget what is most important, which is knowing God and following him and trusting him and hoping in him and worshiping him with all of your life. None of those things that I listed are bad, but if we're not careful and intentional and consistent about keeping our minds and our hearts on Jesus, we will begin to care so much about those temporary things that we care, that we don't care about God and we don't care about Jesus coming to us in the way that we ought to. And we don't receive it as good news of great joy. We receive it as something that's just fine. That's just good. Yeah, this is the thing the preacher is supposed to talk about at this time of year. This is what we do around Christmas time. But fam, I want to encourage your heart today with the truth that yes, sin has enslaved this world and all of us outside of Christ are in the domain of darkness, but glory to God, our victorious king has come to, king has come to set us free from the domain of darkness. He is greater than our sin, our guilt, our shame. He's greater than our suffering. He's greater than all the brokenness of this world. He's greater than your lust and your apathy and your doubt and your idolatry. He's greater than your fear. He's greater than your pride. He's greater than your selfishness. He's greater than your hopelessness, your despair, and all of your misery. And Christ the Lord, the Messiah, the victorious King, through his life, death, and resurrection came to deliver us so that we would no longer be mastered by those things. Not that necessarily in this life we want to experience them, but they no longer master us. They no longer have control and dominion over us. And in verse 14, 
we see what that means for all who are followers of Jesus. I want to I start back at verse 13 to make sure we don't forget the context. Verse, four, verse 13 says, And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. The second thing that is unique about Jesus' birth is that Jesus' birth brings peace to God's people. Jesus' birth brings peace to God's people. The biblical perspective on peace comes from the Old Testament Hebrew word shalom. It's a word that refers to overall wellness and health and completeness and wholeness. When things in life or when things in creation are the way they are meant to be, that is shalom. The best way I know how to explain it, using words that I commonly use, is like when you say, I'm good. Like if someone asks you how you're doing, I ain't talking about that fake stuff when you put on your church face and say you're good when you're not good. That ain't what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about, side note, what I'm talking about <laughs> is if someone asks you how you're doing, you're like, I'm good. That's shalom. When you consider the relationships you're in, you're like, I'm good. Or we're good. That's shalom. When you think about even, even the way you view yourself and you're like, I'm good. That is a way that we refer to the concept of shalom. Amen. Amen. To have true and holistic shalom is to be good with yourself, is to be good with other people, is to be good with God, and is to be good with God's creation. One way to talk about what happened during the fall of man when Adam and Eve sinned is that shalom became broken in God's creation. The kingdom of darkness came breaking in when Adam and Eve sinned. And when it came, the breakdown of, and, and with it came the breakdown of shalom in God's creation. So now we experience chaos, which I actually, which I actually consider to be the opposite of shalom in many ways. Chaos is just complete disorder, complete disarray, things not going in the way that they were intended to go or the way that is, that is helpful and harmonious with the rest of creation. It's when things are out of whack in much of life and there is dysfunction everywhere. The shalom was disturbed, and we're in a world that is ravaged now with chaos. People not living the way that God intended for us to live. And because of this breakdown of shalom, because of this chaos, we are no longer good with ourselves in many ways. We now have shame and insecurities where we feel like we are not acceptable. We often don't respect or honor or take care of ourselves as we should. We treat and think of ourselves as, 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 as if we are less than image bearers of God. So we do things that are beneath our true status in God. Sometimes it goes as far as we even experience self-loathing where we even hate and despise ourselves. There is a breakdown in shalom in our relationship with ourselves. Because of sin, there is a breakdown in shalom in our relationship with others where we are no longer good with others. Because of sin, we now harm and hurt each other. We do this on a large scale with things like large scale or societal injustice and oppression that has happened repeatedly throughout the history of our world. We also see this play out on a personal scale where we lie to each other. We steal from each other. We abandon each other. We harm each other with our words and with our actions. We tear each other down often instead of building each other up. And many of us, we have the scars and the wounds to prove it. The sin causes a breakdown in our relationships with each other, a breakdown in shalom. 
Sin causes a breakdown in our relationship with God where we are no longer good with God outside of Christ because our sin separates us from God. And we sin against him time and time again. We think we know more than he knows. We think we are wiser than he is. We think our ways are better than, than he is. We think we are more trustworthy than he is. We think other idols and false gods are more worthy of our time and our attention and our affection than he is. We look to things that he has created to satisfy us more than we look to him to satisfy us. We now have guilt and, and condemnation that we are worthy of before God outside of Christ. Sin has caused a breakdown in the shalom in our relationship with God. Sin has caused a breakdown in shalom in our relationship with his creation as well. We're no longer good with creation as mankind was in the Garden of Eden. We take for granted all the blessings that God gives us through this earth that he has placed us in. And the earth is now difficult and often harmful and even dangerous for us. Because of sin entering our world, working in the ground is now very difficult and even painful. We're not in right relationship with animals. We were never supposed to fear animals. We were never supposed to fear anything in God's creation. We were never intended to have to fear dangerous storms that now cause so much destruction and death. But we are no longer good with creation because of sin. Sin has caused so much damage and destruction and harm and death. And instead of shalom, our world is filled with chaos and disorder. But praise be to God for the truth that the heavenly host proclaimed that that announcement of Jesus' birth, back to verse 14, when they said, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. The angels announcing that this king is bringing peace to a world of chaos and disorder that things are no longer going the way that God designed them to go because of the kingdom of darkness. But this king that was born on this day that is bringing in the kingdom of heaven to earth, he's going to restore peace to God's creation. He's going to restore peace to God's people for all who place faith in him. Family, I don't know what all would come to your mind if someone were to ask you, why did Jesus come to the earth? I don't know what you would say. I don't know what would come to mind, but I hope that one of the many thoughts that comes to your mind is that he came to bring, bring peace to a world that is full of disorder and chaos. I hope one of the things that comes to your mind is that he came to bring shalom to God's creation, that he came to bring healing, to restore us, to be good with all the different relationships that we, that we have. I hope one of the things that comes to your mind is that through the breaking through of his kingdom into the earth, he is overthrowing the domain and the rule of darkness. And in doing so, he is restoring peace. He's restoring shalom where there was chaos. And family, the way that he did that was so powerful and so triumphant. See, 30 something years later after his birth, he was crucified on a hill called Calvary. And there on that hill, he allowed all of the darkness on that hill, he allowed, allowed all of the chaos, all of the disorder, all of the dysfunction to come crashing down on himself. He allowed the hatred. He allowed the injustice. He allowed the oppression. He allowed the sin. He allowed all the violence of this earth, all the fact, everything that was not good about this earth. He allowed it to come down on him when he allowed mankind to kill God. That is the essence of the chaos that we experience in this world. There is no place where you can see the dysfunction and the chaos more than the cross of Jesus Christ. Because in the garden, the way that it was set up was that God was to rule over his people and lead them out in love. But instead of the cross, we see how much that is flipped upside down as mankind has tried to rule over God and even kill him. 
through the evil that is in their hearts. It is chaos at its fullest extent. And he allowed it all to come crashing down on him. But then three days later, in the most victorious thing that the world has ever seen, he showed that he is greater than the darkness as he rose from the grave. When he rose from the grave, he says, I am able to take all of the darkness on and defeat it. And so if you want to find peace, if you want to rise up above all the chaos and all the darkness and all the pain and all the hurt and all the evil in this world, you come to me because I have defeated it. He has shown he is the one that is able to bring peace. He's the one that is able to restore shalom as he took death, even death itself, and rose from the grave with all power in his hand. And when he rose from the tomb on the third day, he is showing us that he is in fact the Messiah, the promised one that would free his people. He's showing us that he is in fact the king with the, with the kingdom powerful enough to break through and overcome the kingdom of darkness. He is showing us that he is in fact able to bring shalom where there was chaos and darkness. And he is showing us that in his coming, where he is showing us that his coming is in fact good news of great joy for all the people. And day by day, as we trust in him, day by day, as we follow him, he is progressively restoring our shalom with ourselves. So now if we're in him, the grace and mercy and unconditional love that he shows us begins to heal us from some of the lives that we've heard and even some of the lies we have told ourselves about ourselves. That as we follow him, we, we, we learn and we realize that he gives us a status of sons and daughters of God and citizens of his kingdom and affirms us of the dignity and value that he has placed on us. And day by day, he's progressively restoring our shalom with others. In him, he also shows us how to treat each other with great patience and great love and grace and mercy. And through his spirit, he not only shows us, but empowers us where we were controlled and bound by our sin. Now the Holy Spirit in us empowers us and gives us the strength that we need to display the love of Christ with those that are around us. He restores our relationship with each other by uniting a diverse family of his followers from different backgrounds, with different perspectives, with different opinions that would, that would in no other way, in no other realm would we be together, would we be living together as a family. But in the family of God, he unites us together in love, in his love that he has shared abroad in our hearts. And family, most importantly, he is restoring our relationship with God that through Jesus' death and, resurrect and resurrection, the penalty of our sin has been paid already and it has been paid entirely. The condemnation because of our guilt has already been given to Jesus who died on our behalf. So now we can have a relationship with God who is old, who was holy even though we continue to sin in our lives. Now we are made right with him. Now there is no more condemnation. There is no more judgment that is left for us because it has all been poured on Christ. He has created shalom between us and our creator even though we have sinned against him. And not only has he created shalom between us, but through his spirit, he continues to empower us that we will walk in the righteousness that he has bestowed upon us. And we long for the day when he will fully restore shalom with all of his creation. For no longer will we experience danger or hurt or harm of any kind because that baby in Bethlehem is coming back one day and he's going to finish and complete what he started. Because the kingdom that he inaugurated will one day be consummated and fully established and we will experience the fullness of shalom, the fullness of peace in every area, in every aspect of our lives with no more pain or sorrow. 
with no more harming each other, with, with no more dishonoring or harming ourselves. Because Christ the Lord will have ultimately and finally overthrown the darkness. And as we reflect on the birth of Christ at this time of year, one of the things that I desire for us to celebrate is that his birth was the beginning of the end for all the darkness, for all the chaos that we have experienced in this world. My hope is that as we reflect on the coming of Jesus, that we will see it as this is, when, this is where the end started. This is where the end of death started. This is where the end of suffering started. This was the beginning of the end, and we know he will come back to complete his work. And family, this greatness, this restoration of peace, this restoration of shalom that we find in him, this is why the proclamation of Jesus' coming is good news of great joy for all people.